1: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Claire Madeline Culkin, and I'm your host. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Susan Cavalier-Adler, the author of The Anatomy of Regret, From Death Instinct to Reparation and Symbolization Through Vivid Case Studies. Susan, hello and welcome. Hello. It's great to have you here. Yes, it's great to have you. Um. So I wanted to speak to you about the title of your book, which is the, the, the first thing that really sold me on um, doing this interview and getting acquainted with your theory, The Anatomy of Regret. Um, that's such a brilliant title. Where did you come up mm-hmm. with it?
0: Well, it really came through a very visceral, deep, um, personal that feeling of regret that I went through myself, and, and I am connecting my gut feelings of, of the kind of agony that one's a major regret one feels in relation to hurting the one you love, um, which is Melanie Klein's view of the depressive position, pain of loss, and guilt. I encapsulate that in my idea more interpersonally overall in, in the idea of regret. Which encompasses loss and guilt, as she said, in a depressive position. So um, it was a personal experience of both heart and gut, gut kind of feelings of agony, very visceral and emotional at the same time, and very much within a relationship. Uh, and actually, I I came upon the idea of and actually writing about it and making a book out of it both through, of course, seeing the pivotal moments of these feeling levels of deep feeling of regret and patience, which the book became, that became the subject of the book. But I also was had one particular moment where, and this is interesting historically, that I was watching um, Clinton... President Clinton on television when the whole Monica Lewinsky um, scandal started breaking, and he was on TV saying at that point that he regretted what he did. But my husband immediately said, "Oh, he didn't. He doesn't feel regret. He, he's just angry that he was caught." And what was so interesting about that was because even though I think he was right about Clinton at that moment, he wasn't actually feeling that kind of regret that I, I, because I heard him talking about regret, my own sense of regret, which was like a fresh wound inside of me, was triggered. And I started like really sobbing and feeling the depth of this pain about hurting the one you love. And so I was feeling that while well, I watched Clinton and my husband commented that he wasn't actually feeling it. Yeah. <laughs> so the whole idea of false versus true regret <laughs> came up at that moment. And then I wanted to get a book about true regret and the existential experience of regret that brings actual psychic change and and beyond moments of change, it, it can actually be part of a whole change in in character uh, structure in, this, in the mental makeup of a personality through uh, pivotal moments of regret. Um, I had had an article that I once published in a journal on Psychoanalytic Review on pivotal moments of surrender to mourning the parental internal object. So that was about Pivotal moments of transformation also toward within developmental mourning, which is my overall theory, and of, of loss and guilt, and uh, also uh, aggression le- leading to those deeper feelings of sadness when one can symbolize and can aggression. So that, um, little moments within that article, but then in this pa- in this book. It's like pivotal around the actual experience of regret within a mourning process in a clinical treatment. And my patients speaks so poetically because they were in the feeling so acutely at the moment.
1: Right, that right. I write. So the idea um the idea kind of came out of came out of the the visceral experience of regret. And so you understood that regret has a kind of anatomy to it. It has um, a kind of a kind of structure, mm-hmm. as though the psychic structure evolves from this very embodied feeling and develops from pivotal moments in working through that bodily experience of regret.
0: Right. Yeah. So in that, and to that point, I think my title, "Anatomy of Regret," although I didn't think of it that way at the time, I thought of you know, anatomy of an idea and. That, the idea of regret as a concept in what I call psychic regret, so the title was Anatomy of That Idea. But then there's also the anatomy related to the actual visceral experience of the body. That's part of regret, so it's, it's part of our anatomy in that sense too. So I think that was a good word to have in the title there.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, it's impossible to think about your book without thinking about the cases that that structure it. Um, The cases as I was reading it, um, I'm not particularly familiar with Kleinian psychoanalytic theory, although it was interesting to see how you position Kleinian theory alongside Freudian analytic theory in order to get to this idea of developmental mourning and psychic regret um, that belongs to you and that you talk about throughout the book. Um, So I kind of, Really relied on the case studies in navigating my way through as a reader. And I found that as you theoretically map um, the anatomy of these psychoanalytic ideas, um, in particular, you draw from both Sigmund Freud, um, Anna Freud, um, as well as Klein and then Fairbairn, um, you kind of piece them together or take them apart, you kind of disassemble them um, in order uh-huh. to find where their limits are. Um, when do they stop being, yeah. when do they stop making sense um, in relationship to what you're seeing in, in your clinical encounter? And so right. it's at that mm-hmm. moment when the cases intervene. And so mm-hmm. your ideas, the anatomy of your ideas are very much advanced by these cases by the bodies of the having these experiences of regret they their bodies speak their bodies speak where theory stops providing us with an intelligible you know language
0: yes well i, I like the fact that as a reader and a reader that wasn't so familiar with the theory that you have told me that you were able to take in so much of the theory through the clinical process, and that um, I, that was very gratifying to hear, because everything I write theoretically and as many theories as I take apart and put back together through integrating them with my framework of developmental mourning, the aim is always to inform. Um, myself as a clinician and others about clinical treatment and the critical clinical moments within a process of clinical treatment. And the theory speaks through moments and through the patient's own voice.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So I think this, particularly because it's so clinical and so many in-depth, you know, clinical cases show the theory through the experience of the person in in therapy at that point therapy Mm -hmm. and
1: psychoanalysis
0: Mm -hmm. would you be able to
1: i'm sorry go ahead
0: yeah no just and mourning within a therapeutic process
1: right would you be able to um explain for our listeners um a little bit of this idea of developmental mourning
0: yes of course um well, first of all, I want to emphasize that it's an affect theory, or we say affect means feelings, so it's a theory about feelings, um, visceral, emotional, all together, and um, heart and stomach, which has different kinds of feelings, but it's a theory of ultimately getting to grief and loss in order to uh, and enhance... Uh, moving forward a developmental process from where it may have been stopped by a loss that hasn't been mourned. So when one moves forward one opens up love and and, and the capacity to connect with the the ones in the external world that move towards intimacy and relatedness with both love and and anger and love and hate, um, and move towards internalizations that come from others that nurture us developmentally too through relationships. So all that opens up through the word person's surrendering their decision against the pain of loss, because we all defend against it because it's painful, especially at first when there's been a lot of accumulated pain from blocked loss or unworn losses. Once the um, bit by bit in therapy, the the um, defenses can be surrendered to to connect with loss, then one can surrender to opening up love. But in order to get to loss, there also has to be overall more love than hate. So you have to deal with aggression as part of this affect process, as part of the developmental process that you see through feelings or affects. So um, the interesting thing now going back historically is that um, Freud, Sigmund Freud of course, believed that um, in Mourning and Melancholia, he, he was talked about the difference between someone who can mourn, and he was talking about just mourning loss. He didn't deal with aggression at all in the mourner, versus the melancholic who stuck with their aggression, turning it against the self, and blocks the potential to mourn. Mm-hmm. What he didn't deal with was how aggression could become part of a mourning process. Melanie Klein does deal with that in 1940, after... Freud's paper in 1917 he uh, Klein deals with it in 1940 in mourning in its relation to manic depressive states and there she uses herself as Mrs. A um, mourning her son because Mellie Klein did lose her adult son Hans Um, and she was actually using herself as a clinical example and went through her own process of mourning and through doing that she showed that her own hostile aggression towards her son that went back to her more primal objects in her internal world to her brother and mother who were there instead of her and then were, again, connected internally with her feelings about her son, that that there was competitiveness, hostility, uh, hostility about being alive and triumphing over him, her dead son with contempt. And there was all this aggression Mm -hmm. towards him that went back to her, her brother and her mother. And there had been a lot of envy. And all this was brought to a symbolic level through her taking apart dreams she had with these kind of Thoughts, these hostile thoughts towards her son and and by symbolizing them you know having the dream images appear after the first shock of her loss, her dream life opened up, her psychic fantasy opened up, and she then was aware that she had this aggressive attitudes towards her son that went back to her mother and brother and as she sorted that out, she became consciously aware of her own aggression. She therefore had a symbolic understanding through the images of the dreams and understanding through conscious words in her own mind what she was angry about towards them or what her hostility was about. She was able through symbolizing that in words, she was able to contain her aggression or her hate and therefore was able to then feel... um, have space to feel her love towards her son and that's when she could surrender to the grief of loss and the word surrender is very important it's one i've used also for argentine tango but that's another story but that's also hard so i bring it in because it's hard to hide all the time um but surrender is um surrendering to grief and loss is something that comes when one's containing the aggression that has blocked one from feeling loss. If you surrender your aggressive defenses and your aggressive attitudes, you can then surrender to pure loss and grief, which is what Freud was talking about in Mourning and Melancholia, mm-hmm. when he just emphasized loss and the adhesiveness and the pain of letting go of the object as the the whole, whole thing of mourning. And, you know, he saw that as the whole deal. So with Klein, it's more complex, but more related to what our, our daily experience of mourning is, and especially in mourning, primal losses that there's a lot of, Ambivalence there's a lot of mixed love and hate and 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 anger and resentments and and attitudes of contempt and hostility. Times envy and all these things that Klein spoke about, once we're conscious of them, they're no longer destructive. We don't have to act them out. Then we can just have words for them and ideas, and that's how we contain them and move towards love again. So it's a renewal of love, mourning and, and grieving, uh, which is the affect grief. Is um, is a process of a renewing and opening up love, so we can often talk about it as a, a rebirthing of the self mm-hmm. in an emotional sense, because we open up the, the primal capacity to love and relate, and of course to through that have intimacy and through that to internalize good relations with others to build a more Solid internal self and a more loving internal world, so it all works together in that way. So that's all part of my developmental morning. Mm-hmm. But I also, um, I'm I'm now speaking about from Freud to Klein to myself. But I also do integrate within that D.W. Um, Winnicott's idea of object survival and how the therapist survives the most. Primal aggression of the patient allows the patient to then begin to symbolize their aggression and contain it and then to mourn. And so his concept leads into Klein's concept of mourning, and there's a dialectic there which I've written about in my uh, book on Klein, Winnicott Dialectic, but it goes from dealing with aggression in therapy with the analyst surviving it to the patient then able to surrender to grief through having their aggression survive. Can contain it and it and and it mm-hmm. symbolize it so it isn't destructive then love is renewed. So Winnicott comes into this and they integrate the American theorists like James Masterson, who built on Margaret Moller's theory of separation. Along with Althea Horner, who built on that theory of Mahler and separation individuation. And Masterson, um uh, talked about an abandonment depression in those who have developmental arrest in the separation individuation phases, and what Winnicott would call the transitional stage of development. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, so, um, Masterson talks about very powerful, um, Affect states, of void states, empty states, and then rageful states, and and eventually more refined anger, getting to loss in somebody who's been developmentally arrested, and so that the grief that we get to then allows for separation individuation to take place that hasn't taken place, and which has arrested the person in what we call a personality disorder or character disorder. Right. Um, but everyone has losses, whether they have that rest at that stage or not. And in therapy and object relations therapy and, and psychoanalysis, I always work towards always whatever the primal loss is, even if it was edible disillusionment um, like Charlotte Bronte, who's I wrote about it in one of my books, The Compulsion to Create. Her disillusionment was the Oedipal stage, her loss. Her sister, Emily Bronte, it was pre edible And when the mother died and she got arrested in separation, individuation. So um, it's getting to the primal loss. But with the character disorder, the whole personality um, it lacks integration because of the arrest and separation, individuation. So there it's absolutely necessary to heal the self and have a whole self that could continue development to have a mourning process. So it's important in everybody, but it's critical to character disorders to move forward developmentally and self-integrate. So self-integration and separation, individuation, overlap and uh, through the morning process both are accomplished and then all the ego functions just organically open up which you don't have to think like ego psychology how do we deal with the patient's functioning because we don't have to deal with their functioning because these ego capacities that help them function evolve organically through the affect focus on the morning process and the affect experience of the morning process and treatment mm-hmm. so observing so self-reflection, a capacity for ambivalence, capacity for consciousness, psychic conflict, for capacity to have a dialectic between different parts of the self, good and bad, love and hate, feminine masculine, psychic dialectic, all these things along with observing ego, self-reflection, and all the ways that we... Um, developed to function in the world are developed organically through the mourning process. So the affect focus allows these the other things to develop without a particular focus on the functioning of the ego. It happens organically through the object relations work and the developmental mourning process, as I'm describing. So I, I take from the American school and the British school, In my thinking about what I see with my patients in this morning process opening up.
1: Right. One of the things that I experienced as a reader um, is that the way that you position all of these different theories, these different aspects of these different theories that come together in the way that they address in some way the morning process everything always comes down to the body and it always comes down to aggression. And it always comes down to the way in which we deal with aggression by symbolizing it in some way. Um, I like very much something that you had said um, kind of um, early on in your book, you write when Freud declares that the shadow of the object fell upon the ego. Essentially he is saying that the shadow of the parents personality falls upon the self um, right. when you were uh, talking earlier just a minute ago you were talking about this idea of surrendering to the loss that in the surrendering of the loss there was a renewal and a rebirth and when you say renewal I think of vows I think of words I think of speech and when you say rebirth yeah. I, I think of birth I think of the body Um. when you when you reference Freud in this way I hold on I just have to unlock my computer it just locked up When you reference Freud in the way, in this way, and you talk about how the shadow of the, you interpret what he what he's saying when he says the shadow of the object fell upon the ego, you're talking about bodies as becoming incorporated into one another on a symbolic level that language allows us to access. Um, Right. Right. And, um, yes.
0: And uh, I've written very much about the visceral feelings the patients have through their own voice, but sometimes describing them myself, sometimes just hearing it through the patients. Um, and, you know, there, there may be, like in the shower in the first chapter, uh, there's something I could read there about where you get that sense of how Totally psychophysical, the whole experience, the critical turning point of regret is, and in each case I have, you have those pivotal turning points towards renewed development and renewed capacity to love, mm-hmm. and actual psychic structure, change of the personality. To to undo the identification with the aggressor that was turned against the self or the other, and to then liberate aggression for healthy self assertiveness and self um, ambition and 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 even relatedness with aggression as a healthy part of love, sexuality, and all that, and we liberate liberated from the destructive aggression. Right. Um, so that happens. It is symbolized and as grief renews the opening up to love. And it is a very body-level experience, and I think you can see that in all the cases. And there are also the cases there of a man and a woman who go through about extramarital affairs and then renew their, you mentioned the word vows, they actually renew their <laughs> vows to loved one, their their mate, their spouse, and they commit to marriage in a more full way than they've ever able, been able to do before. Mm-hmm. So that also shows the couple's um, relationship aspect of this growing through the person's individual work in mm-hmm. their internal world. Um, uh, other aspects I talk about tolerable and intolerable regret and of course that does how does that take place in the body in an article I had a chapter I had called vaginal core of vampire mouth visceral level of envy in women <laughs> third part of it was progress symbolic politics of object relations a long title but it was a chapter in a book called gender and envy and it was um Edited the book, edited by Nancy Burke, a religious book in 1999, chapter on Vaginal Core, Vampire Mouth, shows both in Sylvia Plath, one of the writers that I've also written about in my other books on women and artists and writers and the compulsion to create and the creative mystique. I write about her versus a patient, uh, or in parallel, with a patient I call Miss Z, and you can see that the the voracious Void of the separation-individuation failing with the mother, that was there. That is so. There's so much envy with the hunger because of that. That early emotional deprivation and the lack of contact and connection with the mother through the separation-individuation phases, because of the mother's problems, um, in both the patient and Sylvia Plath, you see the body in in the in. In their self expression, and in my case of my patient in the treatment room with me, so that her, her um, when she was sealed off and and um, her love was split off from her hate, um, she was also expressing this kind of visceral vampire mouth attack on me with biting attacks on me and later when she went through developmental mourning and evolved to a stage of separation individuation that got her to the higher edible stage and at that point there was body stuff about erotic attraction to me but I wasn't just breast to anymore. I was a woman with breasts that she attracted to. And then as she could feel her erotic desires and kind of own her vaginal core, she was no longer had to act out through her vampire mouth biting towards me, emotionally biting me. So there was actually um, this um, uh, shift from the Oral attack to the vaginal core containment of the woman as she developed into a woman. And in Sylvia Plath, you see the little girl in her that never got to really evolve into a woman because her mourning process failed, partly because she never got into any adequate therapy and unfortunately had been given shock treatment and, and, and ended up repeating the suicidal pattern. That was her demise, but before her suicide, she wrote some of her most viscerally alive, body-oriented therapy in her aerial poems. And there's one poem, Daddy, which I've articulated many times in presentations on the dark side of creativity. And um, it's very body-oriented. in her little girl self saying in the first stanza, you do not, you do not do black shoe in which I've lived like a foot for thirty years, poor and white, barely able to breathe black shoe, so. The body is there right away, but that's like the little girl's expression of being sealed off. In her novel, she wrote about the bell jar being sealed off in a bell jar, Mm -hmm. but in this poem, the body sealing off was there, and um, in my patient that that I have in parallel in that chapter on vaginal cord versus vampire mouth, you see how my patient can evolve from that um, arrested, sealed off state into a full expression of interpersonal erotic desire that had contact and connection in it. And that came through reaching that surrender to the grief affects after the biting aggression was contained through understanding of of, of the hunger underneath it that she was expressing towards me. Um, and I, I experienced a lot of it through her putting stuff into me through projective identification me becoming her, battering ram, which then in a dream became the metallic breast, but she became the metallic breast mother, killing an infant by shoving a metallic breast into the infant. So in the therapy, she felt like she was the infant. I was the metallic breast that she called the battering ram. And in, yet in her dream, it was the reverse. She was the metallic breast killing the infant. Those two parts of her, the mother-infant components were... So um, I've gone on quite a bit about.
1: That. <laughs> well, that's okay, because I think that there's something, you know, there's something in that, um, that kind of reoccurs in the cases throughout your book that has to do with um, this splitting off. And if we go back to Freud and the way that you explained him earlier, um, in uh, Melancholia, um, or in his paper, Morning and Melancholia, he talks about how when we lose somebody else, it's not just... The loss of the other it's also the loss of the part of ourself um that was in the other so there's this way in which um bodies become incorporated into one another and separated from one another and we have to reconcile in that we have to reconcile that in some way in order to yes just function as a just function as a as a self um you had said that earlier you had said that um when you're when you're going to deal with mourning, you, or when you're going to face loss, you always have to deal with the primal or the internal object. Partly because external objects may not always be present or agreeable um, in working through right. this process, and partly also because it's the way in which this internal object has become a part of our anatomy, the anatomy of our uh, psyche and our psychic structure that we really have to that we really have to work with. Um, So when we talk about when you talk about the um, splitting off of my body and the body of the other, um, and you also talk about the reparations that need to take place through symbolization in these profound bodily turning points, we're talking again about this relationship between um, the body and language. Once it's put, once the body is put into play in a symbolic space. And I'm wondering if maybe here we can bring the conversation to focus on the case of Sharon that um, features prominently in everything that we've been discussing about your book. Um, would you be able to introduce a yeah, little I'd bit like, about the case?
0: I'd li- Well, yeah, and I'd like to read a passage from where there's that pivotal turning point, because it also is in. You know, my observation of that and her own words. I also want to mention that in the case of June that I have in a Rutledge book from 2003 called Morning Spirituality and Psychic Change, I talk about critical point where she has a dream where the mother's body separates out from her body, and that's very much related to the transference with me at that point. So in me being in the maternal transference, She dreams that, and I go from feeling her feelings with her, like even my lungs expand and her lungs open up, to having very different feelings from her after she has that dream because it's a literal dream defining this differentiation and separation of her body and her mother's body, and therefore I no longer feel through projective identification. Her, you know, me being like, Part and parcel of her, my body and her body, and I start to have different feelings in my body than in her body at that point. Mm-hmm. so the dream actually defines that point um, and and there are things about my body as a therapist too because i I open breathing with another Um, person in that book, Morning Spirituality and Psychic Change. Um, My breathing opened. I I intuitively sense I need to open my breathing so this um, woman on the couch could experience her most vulnerable infant love and tender feelings towards her mother and express it to me and a transference towards me at that moment. Only when I open up my breathing could she stay with such intense vulnerability. I made the psychic space in a bodily way that way. So, yes, in the case of Sharon, we can go to that um, and... um, she was someone who was very sealed off in a, in a what we call a schizoid way and opened up through the treatment through imagery and dreams first and then through the aspect experience. Um, can I read you to, uh, a few lines from there that involve this
1: critical turning yeah, point? absolutely. First, I think it's important to just introduce to listeners who haven't read the book um, that something that makes Sharon interesting is that um, she was a writer and partly she came correct me if i'm um misreading the book or getting this getting this incorrect as i talk about it um but she, par- partly she came to treatment because in her writing um her male characters were never believable they just seemed like reductionistic kind of caricatures of men but not real humans um right
0: right so it the
1: right so the way that um you know there's always this either you are in the book when you go through your cases at these pivotal turning points, you are either giving voice to their bodily grief by describing it, which you do in incredibly poetic ways that I just find myself connecting, you know, connecting with on such a kind of an intimate level. It's like, I know these people now at this point. Um, But in this case, what's so special is that Sharon actually gives gives voice to herself, her own words can become a part of a part of this case. And you allow that um, in in the telling of the story. So I just think that's interesting for listeners to kind of know about before you go ahead and read. Yes,
0: yes, she um, came in and there was Tremendous conscious rage at her mother, who I called like a Medusa-like witch mother. She called her that, um, you know, the monster mother. And rage at her father because he became this passive invalid later in her life, and he never stood up to the mother who was abusing her. But um, And so then when she was writing, play, she wasn't a full-time writer. Later she hoped to become one, but she was had a full-time job um, uh but she was writing plays, and the feedback that she got was that the male characters just didn't hold up; they were like caricatures. And she then she came to me because of the compulsion to create the book I wrote, and about the father and the mother, the mother, the disruption of the father and the demon-loved father. And she couldn't see a father as a demon till later. She started to see that. He, he she felt he was demonic in being so passive, but she she actually wrote him about him in a rather a way that just lacked um, any sense of him, who he was in the inside, mm-hmm. and that's why her eyes were turned out. So yeah, so she came to me also as a writer because I do work with writing groups and I do individ- I work with a lot of writers. I, written books on writers, and, and I work with writing in the creative process and individually and in treatment and in individual consulting groups. So she came as a writer in that sense. And the father was to come alive through this critical, pivotal moment of regret. And that's where, for the first time, I call this passage in... Um, in the the case in the Anatomy of regret, Regrets for Daddy. And I want to read a little bit of it because I want to show you right now the actual pivotal moment of that feeling transformation that goes on through consciousness of regret, which I call psychic regret, meaning consciousness of one's regret. Um, So I'll just read this, and it's related to the father who she had so detached from. Um, I say, this session is memorable for its dialectical pulse of hate and love, spinning around a father object who had been coming increasingly to life as part object forms come to whole object forms as the self and psyche integrate. Um, by the midpoint of this session, Sharon was recalling the hate for a father who epitomized all the forms of failing her, which left her feeling alone and like an alien in her family. Her rage came awake and and she felt it as this fire like she was on fire, but then some another transformation. There was hate, hate, hate. Then suddenly something erupted from another plane as a new regret consumed her. Sharon's syncopated memory jumped forward from childhood to her adulthood as she recalled how he had written to her, her father that is, asking to see her, saying it might be the last time they saw each other. With this thought, Sharon started to cry in great gulps of pain that was different from other times of silent weeping he knew he was going to die she said i didn't believe him i wrote him back a snide contemptuous and dismissive letter saying that of course we'd see each other again i can feel the sneer in the letter now I was a cold, detached, sadistic one then. Not he, not her. I was the metallic object, the unfeeling stone. I never saw him again. As she said this, Sharon doubly erupted in an agony of grief. She gasped to breathe as her tears flooded her and wiped out the hot wires of hate that had possessed her. A new level of memory entered the door of my consultation room. A level of memory that neither of us had witnessed before. Sharon remembered an early daddy that she had kept immured in the darkness of her mental closet up until that very moment. He was a daddy who she now, in this very moment, believed had truly loved her. I never believed that my mother loved me, she said, but I always knew my father had loved me. I forgot all of it. The daddy who loved me. The daddy I loved. Her tears washed her eyes red. I could only see them when she got up from the couch at the end of the session. She concludes, I was so mean, I turned my heart cold. No wonder my first marriage failed and I almost destroyed my second. As her analyst, I felt the poignancy of the moment. As Sharon's heart cried out to me with her newfound capacity to love, we had discovered her daddy. I wanted to sing as her grief washed up on the raft of her core self. When Sharon left the session that day, we both knew that change could definitely happen. He really loved me, she repeated. Seeing her father as a vulnerable being has allowed Sharon to dream of a vulnerable mother with hurt in her eyes. The new image of her mother allowing her to see the child in her mother has allowed her to relinquish the image of her mother as a monster. Okay, so that's that's mm-hmm. basically it that visceral anguished and pivotal turning point of feeling and affect. a really, moment of re-
1: it's really a moment of not just um it's a moment of self acceptance that turns into a moment of acceptance of the other um the split off bad parts of the other um yes, yes, yeah, yeah and that only can happen that only can happen through um accepting accepting Sharon's own aggression. I mean, she realizes that these the aggressions that she was kind of navigating coming from her mother had become internalized and become a model or a mechanism in her relationship to the world. And so there's such a close again it's we get we get back to bodies. There's such an intimate relationship between Um, between bodies, not just physical bodies, but also uh, psychic bodies. Our anatomy is so similar to it's so intricately and inextricably bound with the psychic body of the person who bore us. And I just found it really moving that there's this moment of recognition of kind of sameness. And so through her therapy, She can have compassion for herself. And then she can also have compassion for her mother by seeing her also in the position of a child.
0: Yes, yes. Her compassion and empathy grow. Um, When I've written, um, I had articles called Neurotic Guilt to Existential Guilt as Grief, leading to, and I talk about leading to compassion concern, interiority, the inner self and inner world opening up into consciousness. All these things develop through these pivotal moments within mourning, surrender to grief, and here specifically to regret. And um, you can see in my description that I talk about the heart there. I talk about, you know, her gasping for (laughs) breath, her her eyes turning. It's very, very body, her body, and my sense of it mm-hmm. as I'm with her and my own feelings of other deep feelings with her. Mm-hmm. So, um, yes, it's it's very much body and I, it reminds me of when you talked about of uh, being born, I have, well, I've, I have an article actually called Divine, the, the Deviant and the Diabolical that was once in... Um, the International Forum of Psychoanalysis Journal, and then I put it at the end of the Morning Spirituality and Psychic Change book, which was a Rutledge book in 2003. And um, it's about a woman artist who, through her paintings, you can see the very visceral body stuff that went on in her morning process, as she, for the first time, felt she was being born. And, and she would talk about being born in the paintings, and you could see it. And I also think of another patient talk about a Primal dream she had that we went back to again and again because it was about how her mother 's body could not contain her, and she was spilling out, so she had to kind of find a container and be reborn through the treatment process see this so, way? Yes, it 's very much about um, psychic birth and um, viscerally and emotionally experienced together
1: This way that you describe your patients describing their own experience is interesting to me in that there's always a way in which they're looking for a metaphor to describe their bodily experience like when we talk about the mother that can't contain me we're talking about the way in which our my body cannot be incorporated as a part of the mother's body um as this the body is this point of this boundary or this 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 limit over which things can overflow this brim kind of. Um, So this, the way in which we use language is to create a symbolic structure for talking about the way that our bodies relate to one another with which we can do something more. We can do something. We can do something with this metaphor psychically that allows our relationship to ourselves and to others to change. That's something that I, Think I'm seeing as being consistent throughout each of your cases in this book as well as in the cases that you're represent that you're um, referencing here that exist in your writing elsewhere
0: hmm yes yes and what yes the patient begins to have a sense of agency through using metaphor that they then feel they have an understanding of their self and how their process operates mm-hmm. so the metaphor a birth becomes a whole way of experiencing life then, of when one's opening up to renewing oneself, opening up to contact connection and uh, nurturing new internalizations through that too, for continued development, or when they're closing off from that. And they learn about all the ways they close off from that and their habits in doing that mm-hmm. from a lifetime. And so, yeah, the metaphor of birth or, or, or of, hiding away in a a womb and because of their fears and defining what their fears are, the metaphor of birth becomes a a whole constellation.
1: Right. Um, I just would like to begin the closing of our interview, I suppose, with a quote from, from your book. You write, it is our wish to love that makes us human. It is our longing for one another and our highly aggressive conflicts around loving that force us to grow in the human psychic and spiritual struggle. I think that really speaks to what you understand so well about your patients as people experiencing something universal about human suffering. You say that it's extremely important for uh, personality disordered individuals or individuals with character structure problems to go through this mourning process but it's not something that ex- that's exclusive to them. It's arrested in particular ways that are particularly detrimental, right. but it's a part of our of everybody's our experiences. Ex- it's a spiritual human. and human experience. It's a human experience right. to have that trauma, and it's a spiritual experience to be reborn out of it through some kind of therapeutic growth. Right. Yes,
0: absolutely. Um, uh, so... Uh, <laughs> Um, I use the word existential guilt as grief, going from neurotic guilt to existential guilt as grief, in uh, some articles of mine in the American Journal Psychoanalysis, and that came together. We recently had a conference on guilt, conscience, reparation, and regret, just um, uh, just uh, two Sundays ago, and from my institute, the Object Relations Institute, and um, we. Um, there, Donald Cavath and I were talking about these things in somewhat parallel terms. He talked about going from the persecutory superego to um, to conscience, which relates to the heart. I talk about going from you know, neurotic guilt, which has is related to that, persecutory guilt, to existential guilt as grief, which relates to reparative guilt. And so we were talking in parallel terms and we were both talking about the heart and therefore I also... Um, perform Argentine tango which is our heart to heart to show that that moment of improvisation of life where heart to heart where you are open to connection and contact um, when you're not living in a sealed off state but we have the character disorders that are really so much of them is unborn and then we have others who are, are born who but still who have to more and loss, in order to become more and more fully human and to face and contain their fears and move towards more containment and more relationship and intimacy and commitment through through the um, love being renewed and so again, going back to the affect level of containing hate as part of the human condition, rage aggression all and but containing it symbolizing it to transform aggression towards healthy relating, self-assertion, self-containment, and then love can develop along with creativity. So love and creativity develop. They can get blocked in the same way or they can... They they do get blocked in the same way, and they open up also through the mourning process, both the creative self-expression and love. In fact, my theory of psychic health, which I stated most explicitly in my book, The Creative Mystique from Red Shoes Frenzy to Love and Creativity, the a book about women artists and writers and the creative process and the morning process. It was it was, goes hand in hand with the compulsion to create and women writers and their demon lovers. Those were published in Routledge in ninety three and ninety six nineteen ninety three and ninety six. But now were are republished by O R I Academic Press and the Creative Mystique, which has a red. Red ballet slipper on the cover for the red shoes theme and this has Suzanne Farrell in New York City Ballet with Balanchine in there. It also has my theory of psychic health and there's a chapter on the creative process and psychic health and I talk about the love creativity dialectic which is that when we're whole and open, and we have sufficient self-integration and separation individuation, we naturally flow from connection with ourself for our own self-expression, which can become our creative work and creative process and artistic work or just creative uh, work. Um, we go from that self connection organically to love or connection through a relationship with the external other through intimacy. And back and forth, intimacy renews us. We get nurturance through external relationship, love, and intimacy to enhance and keep... Developing the internal self, which then we have our more creative resources. So it's, or when we're healthy, we go back and forth from self connection to other connection, and from other connection, we then need to go back into ourselves and we take nurturance inside. When we create and express ourselves, we also allow for an opening to the other that allows for intimacy. So it goes back and forth. In conditions like what I call the compulsion to create, where someone seals off because of traumatic relationships and gives up on them and tries to live in the creative process, kind of, there's no nurturance from the outside, even the creativity of the most brilliant women writers that I've written about dry up. So um, <laughs> they That compulsion to create is the other side of writing blocks, which I deal with all the time. It's when the artist's living all the time in their internal womb of compulsion to create and feeding on itself from the outside, uh, from the inside, and not going out and getting nurturance in relationship. Um, And and, and that tends to happen in character disordered and often brilliant artists have had those character disorders and demonstrate this in their work, which I was showing in the Compulsion to Create and the Creative Mystique. So there's that, um, uh, The the there's that and the writing blocks seem to happen with more neurotic people who have repression. They don't live in the creative process. They have trouble sometimes expressing their creative resources because of their... Um, Often defenses against their aggression, but they have a repression. So instead of letting it all pour out in their work, like someone with the compulsion to create, mm-hmm. externalizing the internal world, the internal pain, just letting it pour out, they repress things. So then they get writer's blocks rather than living in the creative process and the compulsion to create. It's two opposite sides of a problem. But the healthy side is having, um, motivated creative Creativity, not the compulsion and not the block, but rather a free motivation to create, and that free motivation to write or create is, is comes from a dialectical interaction with the capacity to love, and love the other and have intimacy and get nurtured through that for and to internalize for. One's inner self and one's self connection, one's creative process. Mm -hmm. So, and and then there's the love addict who can't love, who just always clings to the other and has no sense of his, her, or his internal resources, and always is there trying to get, feel alive through connecting to the other Mm -hmm. and not having, not being able to um, connect enough with the inner self because it can be. Field often needs to open up to relationship, so that the those are the two sides of the pathology: the love addict or the compulsion to create. But the health is where there's a free flow from connection with oneself to connection with the other, from creative self-expression to intimate, loving contact with um, someone that we get to know and love.
1: Right. So in all of these cases, there are different ways with which we contain ourselves. And there are either fluid boundaries between that. There's some flexibility or there's not. And I get the sense that it's when, uh, the way that we build these containers, so to speak, becomes too rigid and inflexible, too arrested, um, that we experience, that we experience just, you know, psych- psychological issues, just relationship issues. It's making those boundaries between self and other more fluid, as well as the relationship between self as as other um, more fluid. It's a very tragic it's a very tragic story, all of the ways that we do this to ourselves and to other people, just arrest our relationships and contain ourselves. But it comes with a very hopeful story about rebirth, I think, in the way that you tell it.
0: Yes. The developmental mourning is a story of rebirth and re, re, re and growth so, and and letting go of the old opening to the new. So my definition of mourning is while it can encompass bereavement, it's much broader. It's about all of human the whole human condition and mourning throughout life as letting go of the old opening to the new, keeping the system open. Mm-hmm. from this love outside to creative self-connection inside. Um, in tango, Argentine tango, which uh, since I'm an advanced Argentine tango dancer, I always use those metaphors, mm-hmm. we have connection with the self, the other, and the music. And in mm-hmm. the clinical moment with the patient, uh, we as followers with the patient, go through the unconscious of the patient, there's the connection with, our, with the patients where they are with the other and with ourself and with the music of what goes on between us in this space and between what Winnicott calls the transitional space and the music of the words of the patient that comes through these developmental mourning affects because you can see how poetic Sharon is, how poetic the patient is in that moment mm-hmm. of such in-depth visceral and emotional experience all together
1: absolutely I think that's a beautiful place to to end our interview we are out of time um, okay it has been wonderful speaking with you Susan and perhaps we'll have you again in another um, interview on the New Books Network
0: oh yes it would be a pleasure and uh, perhaps on the Klein Winnicott dialectic book okay
1: alright thank you so much Sharon Susan, I'm so yeah. sorry. I'm getting you confused. <laughs> I mean, my patience. <laughs> All
0: right. Okay, yes, that was a made-up name anyway, but
1: yes, <laughs> thank
0: you. Um, thank you, Claire. It's been a lovely interview. I really appreciate the space and time to express myself so freely about my, my life's work. <laughs> thank you.